Are you reaching your full potential? Are you unlocking the key to be all that you can be? It's interesting when we think about this notion of full potential, this, this idea of being all that we can with our lives. John Acuff is an author and speaker. He was once interviewed by Forbes magazine, and he was asked the question, why do you think people don't reach their full potential in life? And this was his answer. The most common trap is fear. I've never met a 20-year-old or a 50-year-old who says, I've never had a single passion or dream or hope or desire. We all have them. But a lot of us give in to fear as soon as we get close to them. The reason is that fear only gets loud when you do things that matter. Love that. Fear gets loud as we begin to do things that matter. And what does that fear do practically in our lives? Acuff goes on to say, you graduate from high school or college and effectively shift into neutral. You're not moving that fast, but you're getting great gas mileage and you're making some progress. You're definitely getting older, and that means something, right? With age comes wisdom. Not necessarily. Especially if you're coasting. Eventually, you'll roll your way right into the grave. It's not difficult to understand the concept that he's throwing out, though, is it? That fear will not help you reach your full potential. That coasting through life will not help you reach your full potential. But even those words are kind of interesting, right? Your full potential. I mean, it doesn't have a, have a kind of an egotistical hint to it, you know? It sounds like you're just saying everything's about you, you, you. It's all about me. It's all about me. And even our decision-making, sometimes it, it's all about me. Think about the decisions you've made this week. How many of those decisions are focusing on just you? There's three different ways to find out if we can make decisions based on our ego. If we're making decisions based on me, 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 you, you, you. These three. You're impulsive, you're compulsive, or you're angry. Let's look at those just briefly, one by one. You're impulsive. Ego's favorite time frame is right now. If waiting on a decision for 24 hours feels impossible, then your ego might be at the wheel. Second, you're compulsive. Ego's favorite amount of anything is more. There's never enough for our egos, and they are never satisfied. And the third one is anger. If the ego doesn't get more of what it wants, right now there's an eruption of anger. You might not kick over a table, but you'll throw a tiny adult tantrum internally. <laughs> we don't normally think of adult tantrums, do we? Guess what? We, we throw them all the time. Again, just, just think back over the decisions of this past week or the, or the last few weeks. How many of your decisions have been driven by you, you, you? How many of your decisions have been driven by, by ego? You know where I got those three things from? John Acuff, the same guy. John Acuff is the brains behind a website known as StuffChristiansLike.net. And those ego trips, so to speak. Those, those three pictures of ego were connected to a post that he wrote that began with this sentence. I won't ever win a humility contest. <laughs> he was in a battle with himself over his pride and humility, over his ego and his humility. But I love what he came to after 
the battle. This is what he said. I prayed that God would help me be humble, that he would help me learn humility. And then a tiny voice inside said, do I have the freedom to teach you that in any way I deem best? I don't know if that was God, but I was convicted because I realized the answer was no. I would prefer that God teaches me how to be humble through moments that are not humbling. I want to learn humility, but not in ways that are unpleasant at all. I want to learn generosity, but without all the hassle of actually giving anyone anything. I want growth without discomfort, but that's not how it works. Growth is always uncomfortable. Listen, none of us in this room need to be driven by fear. None of us in this room need to be comfortable with coasting. And none of us need to be making all of our decisions based on our ego. What we need to be doing is is growing. Because if we're not growing, then we're kind of sitting in the waiting room of the grave. And that's not what God has designed for our lives. It's not even what God desires for our lives. There is more. Why did I throw out all this John Acuff at you this morning? Because I want to take his two completely different articles and pull them together to say this, that his two ideas are the key to your growth. Humility is the way to reach your full potential in life. Humility is the way to reach your full potential in life. Well, what does that mean? Well, let's find out. Look with me, beginning at Philippians 2, verse 3. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. If a young mother is baking something in the oven, and she walks over to the oven to to check it and opens up the door and suddenly looks next to her and realizes her little three-year-old boy is standing there with wide eyes, what's she going to do? She's going to say, don't touch. Don't touch. That'll, That'll burn you. Paul is is writing to us, and he's saying, don't touch. Don't touch selfishness. Don't have anything to do with selfishness. Selfishness by its very nature is destructive. Selfishness does not create unity. In fact, selfishness does the exact opposite. See, a selfish person is determined to get their way, and when they're determined to get their way, they're not concerned about how their way might impact and influence other people. In fact, selfishness, when lived out around other people, it leads to rivalry. Rivalry. See, selfish arguments and selfish conflict, they lead to people choosing sides. And those sides are are constantly pulling in different directions. Here's how it works in the home. In the home, one child might choose one parent over the other. (laughs) You know, that, that selfishness, that rivalry that gets created. Or maybe a a parent might choose one child over another. Or maybe a parent might choose the children over the spouse. There's all different ways that it can work itself out in the home. But it's true at school and at work, out on the field, on the court, and other areas of life. Selfishness breeds this attitude of of choosing sides. And and people will find themselves grouping around a certain group over a certain thing or or grouping around a certain person. And sometimes those certain people are wanting people to group around them. And and sometimes people just say, how am I going to get around that guy or that gal because they may get me what I'm really wanting. But this 
pattern of selfishness, regardless of how it works out and who chooses what sides, all it does is create destruction. All it does is is create the opposite of love and unity. This is what Jesus said one day to some Pharisees, some religious folks. You hypocrites, rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. Jesus talking to some very religious people says to them, guys, what you're doing on the outside, your religious activities, it's the opposite of what's going on in your heart. And see, that's why selfishness is so dangerous. Because while we are fighting to get our selfish way, we are convinced that God is for us. We're convinced that when we're pushing our agenda or our opinion or when we're determined that our spouse is wrong and they need to be on our side or our kids are wrong and they need to listen to us, we are convinced God wants what we want. See, here's the nice thing about God. We don't have to be confused about what he wants. God has told us everything that he wants. And he has laid it out in various ways from Genesis to Revelation. You see, the the key and the cure, so to speak, for self-centeredness is is Bible-centeredness. The way that we work through a a selfish lifestyle is to become more God-centered than more self-centered. And when we become more God-centered, the math is incredible, it's good for you. The less self-centered and the more God-centered, the better it is for our life, the better it is for our marriages, our families, our workplaces, our schools, and even the church. God-centeredness is what Paul is pushing us toward, and he is warning us, don't touch selfishness. He also says, don't touch empty conceit. What is empty conceit? Well, here's a definition of conceit. An excessively favorable opinion of one's own ability, importance, wit, etc., Paul takes that definition and he says this, the excessively favorable opinion you have of yourself is actually empty. My friend Joel, every Christmas, makes me a Christmas tin of this chocolate toffee stuff. Oh my goodness. That's exactly what it looks like too, if you can see that picture. It's incredible. And he makes me this big tin. So, he gives me the tin like right before we move, like, you know, seven or eight weeks ago. So we move and, and I put, you know, the tin in my little spot in our new pantry. And, and about the second or third night we were here, I, I just, I got home really late that night. And oh, I was, I was just so, le- I had two pieces left. I mean, I count them. I mean, I know what's in there. I was so excited. I got two pieces left. Couldn't wait to get home. So I go home. I think everybody was even, might have even been close to getting in the bed or I don't know. But anyway, so I walk in, I open the pantry and I get out my little Christmas tin. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Empty. Empty. I really don't know who to blame. <laughs> I mean, my kids know better, you know? I don't know. Maybe Karen just got bold that night. I'm not sure. But I I still feel the pain of losing those two pieces of toffee. Seven weeks later, it hurts. 
Paul is, is taking this concept of, of conceit. And he's saying we, we tend to, to have our Christmas tin and we, we have our name on the outside of the tin. And we hold it up and we say, look how able I am. Look how important I am. Look how witty I am. And Paul says your, your tin is actually empty. There's, there's nothing in there. Because the only way something could be in there is for somebody to put something in there and we can't put anything in there. So the correct way to look at this is that the tin has God's name on it. And that whatever importance we have, whatever ability we have, whatever wittiness we have, it's a reflection of God because God has created us. And so it's God who should actually get the attention. Our attention that we bring on ourselves is actually empty. There's this amazing picture that we have throughout the scriptures of what it means to not boast in ourselves. What it means to not think too highly of ourselves. Paul, when he was writing the Roman church, said this, do not be wise in your own estimation. A person who is full of of empty conceit is, is someone who's constantly wanting to bring attention to themselves. Someone who is determined to to always be right in everything. And someone who is determined for everybody to agree with them all the time. Now before you turn and look at your spouse, let me just warn you, all right? We're all that person. We're we're all that person. We we are all guilty. Michael Jordan is arguably the, the greatest basketball player to ever play the game. In a couple of weeks, he'll turn 52 years old. When he turned 50, ESPN journalist Wright Thompson did an article, an interview with him. This is one of the things Jordan said in the interview. My ego is so big now that I expect certain things. It's pretty big. Thompson observed this. Jordan is used to being the most important person in every room he enters. People cater to his every whim. The most important person in every room, everybody caters to his every whim, and he expects it. That's big. Michael Smethurst is an associate editor for the Gospel Coalition. He joins in on the conversation at this point. As a Christian, it's easy to feel discouraged, even disgusted by Jordan's egotism. Yet, the distance between him and us is, after all, uncomfortably slim. We want to be the most important person in every room. So we may not admit it, but that is how our sinful nature works. It's how it works toward our spouse. It's how it works toward our children. It's how it works at, at work, at school, in the church, and everywhere else. When we walk into the room, we really want everybody to give us more attention than we should desire and we should want. There's not much difference. But you know, that kind of empty conceit, it didn't start with us. It started before the foundations of the world. Isaiah chapter 14, verses 13 and 14 says this, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. And I will sit on the mount of assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. Know who's talking there? (laughs) Satan. The enemy. 
That was what he felt like he was due. That was his estimation of himself. It's still his estimation of himself. He really thinks that he's the one who should be the most high. But see, his estimation is empty because his finality has already been determined. The rest of his life has already been set in stone by God. The rest of verse 15 says this. This is God's response. Nevertheless, you will be thrust down to Sheol, to the recesses of the pit. You see, the enemy will never be the most important person in the room. It, it will never happen. The only destination he has is the pit. But here's the thing. If you are not a believer, if you're not a follower of Jesus, please know this, that, that your destination is not any different. If you are someone that really does take great pride in your abilities and your importance and your wit and you are putting those things out there as if they are yours, then you are reflecting a heart that has not been captured by Jesus Christ. In fact, the scripture would say if you do not repent and, and turn away from those things that when you pass from this life, that the pit of despair and torment is, is the only path that you'll be on. It's bad news. It's bad news if selfishness and empty conceit are who we are. I think sometimes we forget that directly or indirectly, if we're not a Christian, our God is selfishness. Our God is empty conceit. Selfishness and empty conceit is, is our religion and it's what we worship and it's why we need a God who's mighty to save us and rescue us from that. And there's good news for that. Michael Smethurst has one more word for Michael Jordan. Michael, you never had peace. Triumph and fame, yes, but not peace. James Naismith invented a game that brought you a sense of purpose, of value, of calm. But it was only that, a sense, a counterfeit of the real thing. You will never find life outside the game for the same reason you never found life in it. It's not there. It's not there. See, the real life, the real thing is only found in Jesus Christ. There's nowhere else we can look. Life and hope and eternal life is only found in Jesus, only found in the Son of God. And when we find Christ and when Christ finds us, emptiness and selfish conceit, that's not supposed to mark our lives anymore. It doesn't mean we won't have our moments as always, but, but we shouldn't be known for it. And we shouldn't be known as the most selfish person in our house. We shouldn't be known as the most selfish person at work or at school or anywhere else. As believers, those are the things that are supposed to be fading away. We should be marked with something completely different. And what's that? Look back at verse 3. But with humility of mind. Not selfishness, not empty conceit, but with humility of mind. This word in, in the Greek culture was not one that anybody wanted. You know, it wasn't a word that someone would say, oh man, I'm really, I really like that guy, man. He's humble. No, it was a, it was a bad terminology. You, you didn't want to be known as someone who was humble because it was lowly. It was the notion of putting a common value on yourself, not thinking too highly of yourself. You know, in our culture, when we hear the word humble or humility, it's, it's usually considered something to be admirable. Something noble? Oh, he's, he's a humble guy. I mean, she, she has a lot of humility in her life. 
But the reality is when we begin to look, we don't find tons of people who are genuinely living consistently a life of humility. Even among us as Christians, we don't find a lot of humility among our lives. Why? Well, the very basic concept of humility may not get you the starting position as quarterback on the team. Humility may not get you that starring role in the play. Humility may not get you that scholarship. It may not get you that promotion at work. It may not get you a big fat paycheck. Humility is something that in our culture doesn't always say you're going to win and and you're going to be successful. Even among us as Christians, sometimes we're tempted to work way too hard to do something that, so we can be proud of ourselves rather than chase after the humility that Jesus has passed down to us. Jesus said this in Matthew 5, 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed and happy are the people that don't keep holding up their Christmas tin saying, look how great I am. Blessed and happy are the people that don't make a big deal out of their abilities and their importance and their wit. But rather they are humble in mind. They they have a, a common value on their life. They realize the grace of God in their lives. And what did Jesus say folks like that would receive? The kingdom of heaven. Now look, I'm terrible in math. I'm pretty sure the kingdom of heaven is better than being quarterback. Pretty sure the kingdom of heaven is is better than the scholarship. Pretty sure the kingdom of heaven is better than the big paycheck. The eternal life forever and joy and happiness and peace and love with God is better than anything else in the universe. And Jesus says those who pursue humility, those who come to faith in him and pursue humility, that is their destination, the kingdom of heaven. Paul says do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. Don't touch it. Stay away from it. Rather, grab hold of the concept of humility. Grab hold of the concept of thinking less of yourself than than more of yourself in an arrogant way. And so how do we do that? What does that mean? Look again at verse 3. Regard one another as more important than yourselves. What in the world does that mean, right? Regard other people as more important than I regard myself. How in the world can I do that? Well, the beginning is to have a pretty good perspective on who you are. Derek Webb wrote in a song these words, I can always tell a liar and I always know a thief. I know them like my family because, brother, I'm the chief. The greatest missionary of the gospel who ever lived on this planet, this is what he said about himself. Paul writes to the Ephesians, to me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ. See, we would call Paul one of the greatest heroes of the Bible, and he would call himself one of the least Christians in the universe. And that's why we call him one of the greatest heroes of the Bible. You see, it's his humility that defines who he is. Paul let his lowliness, him not thinking too much of himself, not driving himself by his ego or by selfishness or by empty conceit, all of that helped Paul to consider others others as more important than himself. Why? Even because of the gospel. 
You see, Paul realized even when he was being beaten, when he was being cast out for dead outside of town, his value of the gospel helped him value other people. Listen, if you're struggling in marriage, if you're struggling with your kids, if you're struggling at work, if you're struggling at church, if you're struggling in the community, if you're struggling in the world, the gospel is your answer. The gospel is great news about Jesus Christ, and it's great news that never changes. Every morning, the state newspaper has a different title. Every night, WIS has a, has a different title, a different lead story. The lead story of the gospel never changes. God is great, and God is good, and he has sent his son to rescue and to love and save That news never changes. That's why that news, that gospel is good all the time in every moment of trial, in every moment of difficulty. Our God really is mighty to save. In the middle of traffic, in the middle of the argument, in the middle of the financial difficulty, in the middle of the health strain, whatever it may be, our God is mighty to save. He is mighty to save. Paul's trying to help us see that the more we boast, the more miserable we're going to (laughs) be. The more we have selfishness and empty conceit in our lives, the actual more more miserable we're going to be. Why? Because it's it's not true. It's, It's empty. Let's just think through this for a minute. What do you have right now that you have just because of you? The only reason you have it is, is because of you. What, do you. what do you really have right now that you have just because of you? Let's think through this. Are you smart? Get good grades in school? Or are you top at work? Are you intelligent? Pretty sure you didn't create your own brain. You know, without your brain, there is no ability for you to study. There's no ability for you to make good grades. There's no ability for you to be the vice president or the president or the supervisor. It's it's your brain that God gave you that that makes that possible. Are you a hard worker? You didn't create your muscles, did you? Now see, your, your muscles were created by God. Before you were in the womb, you couldn't work. And even in the womb, you couldn't really work. And when you came out of the womb, you couldn't work for a while. And one day as we grow older, we can't do the work that we used to be able to do, right? And so our muscles and our our bodies and our our ability to work, those are a picture of God's grace and his mercy in our lives, not something that we do on our own. Are you attractive? Are you handsome? Good-looking guy? Pretty gal? Unless you've had lots of plastic surgery, you know, there's, there's nothing about your looks and what the people of the world think about your looks that a reflection of you is still a reflection of God's kindness and God's grace in your life. You see, when we begin to look at every single aspect of our life, what we'll find is there's never a moment where we don't see grace. And that's what Paul wants us to see. He wants us to see that, that we're going to be empty if we keep thinking, look at what I've done. We're going to be empty if we keep chasing after selfishness. We will not reach our potential in life or with God, spiritually, mentally, or practically, if we are constantly focusing on our ego and our ability to make things happen. It is grace, it is grace, it is grace, it is grace. We sang about it, didn't we? Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. 
that saved a wretch like me. You know, there's a reason Newton didn't say, man, I am really cool and I saved myself. Thank you, God. Because he understood the grace that he had received. Without grace, we are nothing. And so we take that grace and we use that grace as our fuel and our energy to consider others as more important than ourselves. But still, what does, what does that mean? How do, how do I do that? How do I consider others as more important than myself? Paul gives us one more picture. Do not merely look out for your own personal interest, but also for the interest of others. First, let me say what this does not mean. This does not mean, and Paul is not telling you to ignore your family, to ignore your marriage, to ignore your kids, to not cut your grass until it's up over your gutters, you know, to to always be out building Habitat for Humanity houses and to spend three weeks out of every month in Africa on mission trips, okay? That's not the picture he's painting here. In fact, it would be the opposite. There is a measure of the fact that if you don't look out for your own interest, then looking out for the interest of others doesn't work, you know? If I am the best neighbor in my neighborhood, boy, I can fix it and help you and I'll get my jumper cables and I'll cut your grass when you're out of town. I mean, I'll do everything for you, but I ignore my family. I am the worst neighbor in the neighborhood. See, the picture could be for me too in this sense. If I can't reasonably shepherd my family, then, then how can I shepherd the church? And so there is, there is this picture that says, don't ignore your interest. Don't ignore your responsibilities. Care for those things. But the picture that Paul's given us is this. Don't only look out for your interest. Look out for the interest of others. Look to serve other people too. This is how Jesus said it. The second commandment, what do he say? Love your neighbor as yourself. What, what does that mean? I mean, most of us could probably probably recite that for it. What does that actually mean to love your neighbor in the same way that you love yourself? This is my favorite definition of of what Jesus is saying. You'll probably hear it 70 more times in the next seven weeks. I don't know. You'll hear it a lot. John Piper says this. To love your neighbor as yourself seems to demand that I tear the skin off my body and wrap it around another person so that... I feel that I am that person. And all the longings that I have for my own safety and my own health and my own success and my own happiness, I now feel for that other person as though he were me. That is the way to reach your full potential in life. That's it. To love your neighbor in the same way that you love your, that's the way on this earth that you reach your full potential. One, because it was a command from Jesus. And two, because it is how God has designed us to function on this planet. He has not designed us to go home, shut the garage, and shut ourselves off from the world with electronics and entertainment. He has designed us to be in relationship. He has designed us to love others in the same way that we love ourselves. That's the key to reaching your full potential. Shed the selfish ego. Shed the the empty conceit. And love other people in the same way that you want them to love you. There's a story told about a reception honoring Sir Robert Mayer, a musician, on his 100th birthday. And there was a British socialite 
an elderly lady named Lady Diana Cooper. And she was there in attendance that night and she struck up a conversation with someone next to her. It was a very pleasant conversation. This woman that she was talking to knew Lady Cooper very well, but Lady Cooper's eyesight was failing and, and she couldn't make out who she was talking to. And so they had a pleasant chat and, and finally Lady Cooper leaned in a little closer and she saw these magnificent diamonds around the person's neck. And she realized she was talking to Queen Elizabeth and had no idea she was talking to her. So she got embarrassed and, and she curtsied and she said, ma'am, I'm so sorry. I, I didn't realize it with you. My, my eyesight is failing. I didn't recognize you without your crown. And this is what the queen said. It was so much Sir Robert's evening that I decided to leave it behind. That's the call of the gospel. Leave your Christmas tin with your name behind. Leave your crown and the selfishness and the empty conceit behind because it does nothing for your soul and your life. And rather pursue humility. I think this week is the anniversary of President Ronald Reagan's birthday. Reagan had a quote that he kept on his desk that said this, There is no limit to what a man can do or where he can go if he doesn't mind who gets the credit. No limit. Full potential. If our desire is to not worry about our name being connected with it. Spurgeon said this, the more self sinks, the more Christ rises. And the Bible says what? When Jesus is lifted up, people are drawn to him. The lost and the saved are drawn to him and things are good when Christ rises. So in order for us to reach our full potential as people, as husbands and wives, as parents, as children, as teachers or bosses or employees or church members or citizens, the way for us to reach our full potential is for Christ to rise. So for the sake of our marriages, for the sake of our children, for the sake of our grandchildren, for the sake of our church, for the sake of the lost, for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of this community, and for the sake of the world, let us become obsessed with Christ rising. Let Jesus Christ rise more and more and more in our lives because then we will reach our full potential and then our hearts will have the joy that we want the most.